Welcome to Blackbird episode number 46. My name is James, and today I am thrilled to bring to you a conversation I had with the host of the Daniel 3 Biblical Anarchy podcast, Jacob Winograd. Jacob and I became acquainted at the Libertarian Party of Pennsylvania convention and the Mises Caucus events that took place around that weekend. It was a ton of fun, even if the Pennsylvania convention was a bit of a shit show. And if you're in LP circles, you heard all about it. And if you're not in LP circles, then you don't care about it. Before we get into it, let me tell you once again about BU Enterprises. Juliet Nail, a previous guest on this show, yoga instructor, Pilates instructor, mindfulness coach, and just a person who can teach you how to breathe if that's all you need, is ready to welcome you back into your body. Head to buenterprises.com today to set up your free consult with her. She does remote classes, or if you're here in the Twin Cities, she will meet with you in person. Once again, that's buenterprises.com. Those are the words spelled out, B-E-Y-O-U, enterprises.com, and I'll put a link in the show notes. One thing to point out real quick, you might notice that the audio on my end of this conversation isn't the greatest. I accidentally recorded with the internal microphone on my laptop rather than the microphone sitting right in front of my face. I'm hoping that the guys at Podsworth are able to make it sound great. But if not, you know, no big deal. You guys can hear me. It'll be all right. The next episode will be recorded once again with my good mic, and you will survive. And with that, here is my conversation with Jacob Winograd. Jacob, thanks for joining me. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Excited to be on. Yeah, so uh, we met in Pittsburgh at the LP Mises Caucus thing, and like the the Pennsylvania shit show of a convention. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. The D-Day of uh, <laughs> the Libertarian Party of 2021, so far at least. I, know. Been, I, don't I, think, think we, I don't think I talked about that on the show. I try to keep this as like LP free as possible. Um, sure. You know, like all my guests have been Libertarian for the most part, or at least kind of Liberty adjacent, but I try to keep the party stuff out of it. I guess before we get started, why don't you introduce yourself? Kind of talk about your bio and what your what projects you're working on and that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, my name is Jacob. Um, I primarily, I mean, I do a, I have a page that I then evolved into a podcast called Daniel Three Biblical Anarchy. I started that because I became a libertarian and then an anarchist back in like 2018, 2019. And um, for me, it was a very um, visceral, very kind of like existential transition, like because when I realized the nature of what the state was and, and that being libertarian wasn't just about like, Oh, I want lower taxes, but like seeing the amount of violence and coercion that exists in society, it, it kind of freaked me out, kind of made me like, I mean, I, I literally felt like Neo from the matrix and was just like, I mean, for a while it was almost like I didn't want to be woken up, but I was, and I just, I couldn't help but notice that, you know, kind of like in a, I'm a Jordan Peterson fan and he talks about like one of his roles is clean your room. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't help but notice that like my room, as far as it being part of the Christian world and community was a giant mess. And so I was like, and I, after kind of going into libertarianism through kind of the Mises uh, Rothbard route and getting a good grounding and understanding of economics and, and the nature of the state, 
I went back and reconciled it with my religion because I'm a very devout Christian and I wanted to try to connect the dots there. I had like intuitions, but I wanted to be able to like back up the connection with scripture. And, um, and I was able to do that. I, I found some great people who, and, uh, there's Stephen Rose of the Anarcha Christian, uh, podcast, who is almost like the godfather of the, uh, Christian anarchist, uh, mm-hmm. internet world right now. Um, there's Mike Mahari, Mahari of, uh, he's part of the 10th amendment center. So I, I found with those guys, found an online community of Christian anarchists, um, so it helped to make me feel like I wasn't crazy <laughs> to try to connect these two. And, um, you know, they, they already had some voices and podcasts out there, but, um, I, I just was like, you know, we, we're, we're such a minority. We need, we need more voices. And so that's what spawned the page, which then spawned the podcast. Cause I, I wanted to, you know, talk about different things. And so, on my podcast, I, I kind of do a little bit of everything. Um, I, I still do a lot of focus on, you know, connecting libertarian philosophy and anarchist philosophy with the Bible, going through different scriptures or talking about different um, historical Christian anarchists. And there's a lot of different ones. I mean, there's the, the most famous one might be Tolstoy. Then there's Dorothy Day. There's early Christians from like the... Um, like pre-Catholic Christians, you have like Tertullian and um, and Polycarp and others that maybe maybe weren't full anarchist in terms of like labeling themselves well, that wait way. Wait now, wait just a, now. I think Tertullian is the one who coined the term Catholic in refer in in reference to the Church. So that I mean, I would say that there is there's no such thing as a pre-Catholic Christian. I, I mean, there's post-Catholic Christians for sure. Right. I mean, the, the the Church has been called Catholic since the earliest writings of Christianity. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I guess I should clarify, you know, post, uh, post Constantine, post Roman Empire. I mean, mm. um, talk, I'm, ta- I'm talking like trying to go back and find, find writings from, from Christians, you know, as close to contemporary from like the apostles up until Constantine as sure. we can. Cause, you know, it's always like you want to go as close to the source as possible mm. from a, from a, uh, like religious scholarly sense. Um, you, you know, because you, you kind of figure it's not that, they necessarily will get everything right. But if you can find things in the earliest yeah. uh, writings of Christian uh, philosophers, scholars, theologians, then you know you're at least not like, you know, crazy or going really yeah. far off base. Well, and, yeah, like, and, like Pope Clement, the the third bishop of Rome, I believe, has a letter. I mean, he was contemporary to Paul and mm-hmm. is, you know, widely considered uh, the second successor to Peter. So it's... It's very good for Catholics, especially, who don't add these things like sola scriptura to the faith as it's been passed down through the through the centuries and millennia, that we have this tradition that goes back all the way to these people who knew the apostles. You know? Sure, yeah. And, you know, like, there's a different, like, I, I, you, you had a Catholic upbringing, right? Uh, I think. Yeah. yeah, see, it's always like I had a very um, non-denominational upbringing, so it's always like... A little, I'm, I'm pro- I probably come across a little autistic to Catholics when I like, I view things differently. I know like the Catholic view from my understanding is kind of like, it's just, it's always been one church kind of like, uh, straight through. Mm-hmm. And to those who aren't Catholic, it, it, you know, that, that's a little bit debatable. Um, you know, but, but we don't need to get into that. But I just, but yeah, it wasn't my, that wasn't the, the focus of what I was going towards with, 
bringing those up. It was just to say that, um, you know, if you go back and look at the earliest, I mean, you don't even have to go look at uh, much further than the Bible. And that's why my whole thing is biblical anarchy is the name of the podcast, mm-hmm. because I mean, just look at the lives of the apostles. I mean, they certainly were not uh, huge proponents of the state. Yeah. I mean, they literally died at the hands of the state because they continued to uh, do what they compel- felt compelled to do, what they, they felt they were called to do was the right thing to do. And you have passages like First Timothy, we must obey God rather than men when they're being, you know, presented with these charges of of of, of not submitting. Um, you know, there's a few passages like Romans 13 and render unto Caesar that get taken out of context. Um, but when you look at the, uh, the Bible as a whole, Old and New Testament, there's, there's a lot there. And that's what I've been trying to do is Talk to, a little bit about Romans 13 real quick. That's a, that's one that it gets yeah, used against, it gets used against, uh, it's the, Christian it's the clubbing libertarians yeah. a lot. And I'm guessing that a lot of my audience don't even know what we're talking about. So, yeah, I mean, Romans 13 is the, um, passage that like starts out by saying submit to the governing authorities for there is no authority um except that which comes from god uh it's in, what's interesting there is the original language and i'm by no means like the well studied in greek but i've i've done my best to try to look at this passage as you know and and look at the original greek and and look at different commentaries and stuff so um I am an amateur at this. I'm not having gone to and uh, you know actually gone to any kind of like college course or anything like that. But I'm but I'm I'm doing my best with the resources I have available. the The word used there is exousia, and the word exousia, when you look at it, um, like in the commentaries, and you see all the times it's used in the Bible in the New Testament, and then like I think what matters most is how Paul used it. Paul generally used it to describe godly authorities and used it to describe God's authority a lot. The only times that the word exousia uh, was ever used to describe the state, it described the state in a demonic sense, as in like these were demonic powers that were coming and persecuting the church, persecuting Christians and stuff. So, um, you know, there's a lot of different Christian libertarian answers to Romans 13, and I'll give mine, but I think the strongest two, like if it, it, the way I put it is, if the word exousia means the state, then Romans 13 is basically say, saying the state is evil and that Christians have to submit to it in the sense of like how we're called to turn the other cheek and to not repay evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. It's kind of like, it's kind of actually in the essence of like the passage of Daniel 3 that my podcast is named after where Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego did not obey the state. Uh, they disobeyed. They didn't bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar, mm-hmm. but they did submit to the punishment. So, but I think that Romans 13 Go is actually not talking about a state. I think what Romans 13 is talking about is governance or the administration of civil justice. And and the reason that I believe that is just going through the text, when you read further down, it says, um, if you would not want to fear the governing authorities, do what is good for uh, for the governing authorities, the exousia, is not a terror to those who do good, but to those who do evil. Um, and, and then later, it's like the, the, the governing authorities do not, do not bear the sword in vain um, if you do evil. And if you're going to try to make the connection between exousia and the state, it's like, okay, well, can you give me even one example of a state in a historical, just observational sense that isn't a terror to innocent good people? 
And then beyond that, just like we don't even need to look at, I, I think you could almost from a deontological um, method, just defining what the state is, it inherently uh, victimizes good people. It's inherently an institution of coercion and and violating the uh, non-initiation of force, violating property rights, violating consent. So I think if you really push Romans 13 to be consistent, um, you know, and you look at it, I think the problem is people want to look at Romans 13 as if it's describing the state. And I, I think that that's wrong. The way that we need to read Romans 13 is that it is God prescribing the uh, role of civil governance. And this also makes sense in context, because when we read Romans 12 before that, um, Paul was talking about um, Christians kind of like um, going in the you're kind of like echoing Jesus's sermon on the Mount about like turning the other cheek and not resisting the evil one. And so Romans 12 talks about like not taking personal vengeance, but instead, uh, you know, loving those who persecute you and overcoming evil with good. But then it's like, he's following up to say, now there, there are those who are going to be um, acting in certain positions of authority to restrict evildoers, but they do that in the protection of good, they're not doing that out of like an act. So it's like, it's kind of like making a distinction. Like, listen, if somebody wrongs you, you should not go out there and seek to take personal vengeance. You should not seek to, to, to have revenge. You shouldn't like if somebody shot, like if somebody stole something from you, you can't go burn down their house. Yeah. So like but Romans 12 is kind of talking about that. Romans 13 then says, okay, but for those who do evil, we do have uh, the norms of civil justice. We have the norms of, of those who would act in a um, role of governing. And like this gets into like, you know, the whole, uh, sometimes libertarians will like, it's, it's kind of a language thing and a semantics thing. We often talk about being against government, but when we say that, we mean we're against the monopoly, the centralized yeah. form of government. We're not against decentralized, polycentric, uh, like market governance. Well, yeah, we're, we're pro-peace. I mean, right. And, in order to have peace, you have someone. You have to have someone to enforce that peace, right? Yep. And so, uh, to me, when you look at Romans twelve and thirteen in context, it's basically Paul saying, uh, when people do evil, don't take it upon yourself to don't, don't seek revenge, don't don't give in to hate, don't escalate things. And then, like Romans thirteen is saying, uh, we we need to just have we need to have norms of civil justice where those who uh, break contract, who violate property rights, who initiate aggression, um, they are handled by those who are, you know, trained and 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 you know, given that role by God to do so. Doesn't mean that it's a centralized uh, role. It just means that there are people who will act in that role, and that can be that role can be filled hypothetically by a state but again then we get into all the complications about like what the state is and then observing it in a you know both modern contemporary and historical sense to see how it really you know it, it fails to do what romans 13 is prescribing these things to do you know it doesn't even come close so i i think it i think it's pretty soundly debunk so you like me came from the political left, I think, right? Yeah, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter back in a 2015, you know, post yeah. high school. I mean, I I probably always didn't fit in the best with um the the crowd that I ran with because I was raised in a conservative Christian home and I never gave up my faith. So my Christian values still sometimes kind of made me a little bit of a 
you know, a, a zebra among horses <laughs> when I was on the left. But I, uh, but yeah, I definitely was a big, like I, I believed, especially like in the economic side of it, I was really big into believing in redistributionism and, and the social safety nets and like the stuff Bernie Sanders pushed about like, you know, taxing Wall Street to pay for healthcare and college. And, you know, I believed, I wasn't really a, a socialist, what I believed in was like that we had to have markets, but that the government's role was to prop up those markets and to give everybody equal playing fields in those in, in the markets was kind of like what I believed in. And um uh then I just happened to like just go through this journey of like just I mean like the first crack was I watched a debate between uh Cenk Uger and Ben Shapiro. And I know Ben Shapiro is a little cringy on a lot of issues like yeah. war and, and stuff like that, but he's good on the economics. So he, he started to crack my understanding of economics and that got me to look into things. And then I found Peter Schiff. I found Tom Woods. I found Dave Smith because they, you know, there was like connections between Shapiro and Rubin. And then Rubin had certain people on his podcast and then Joe Rogan. I felt like I, I was watching all these people's podcasts and found those voices. And so, and then I found, I also live here in Pennsylvania. So then as I started looking into libertarianism, I found local libertarian groups that happened to be uh, filled with a lot of Mises caucus people like huh. Luke Enser and Mike Heiss and, and, uh, and, and other people. So uh, fell in with that crowd and um, yeah, ended up where I'm at today. What part of Pennsylvania are you in? I live in York County, which is south of Harrisburg and west of Lancaster. North of, I'm like I'm like halfway between Harrisburg and Baltimore. Okay. Very close to the yeah. border of Maryland. I was gonna say your your accent is like it almost sounds like a Delaware accent, the way you pronounce your O's and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's um we, there, there's a lot of different regional accents and regional yeah. I mean like we have Pennsylvania Dutch here. We have a lot of people that move up from Baltimore in the city. Uh we have a little bit of everything here. I mean my mom my mom was from Kentucky. So she had a bit of a southern accent, but not it was kind of mild over time. And my dad grew up in um in Baltimore, so he has a bit of a Baltimorean city accent. And I don't know, mine's probably just this, you know, uh like a like a mutt, just a giant mixture of different <laughs> things. That's funny. Yeah, Pennsylvania, man. If they're uh, maybe other than Texas, it probably has the most well, and obviously Manhattan itself uh has the most like diverse cultural groups yeah pennsylvania i think i one time heard it was like pennsylvania is almost like a microcosm of of america if it was like you it's almost like you have california on the left you have new york on the right and alabama in the middle <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like that's it's somewhat accurate i mean it literally when you're i mean you have then you have the mennonites and the amish and it's I mean, like you, if you drive left to right through PA, you you see a little bit of everything. It's yeah. um, it's an interesting place to live. What do you think? Are the are the Amish? Would you consider them anarcho Christians? I mean, they're they're tangentially uh, close to us. Um, I mean, I actually like one of my good friends, Grant, who lives in the county over from me, and he's also like in the LPPA and and associated with the Mises Caucus. He's actually our uh, judicial chair here in um the LPPA. And, um, he, uh, he, he and I, he actually like has a farm and he like wears, he's not Amish, but like he, he 
almost like unironically dresses like one. <laughs> and and so like we we we're always we're always talking about this because we're just like, you know, man, the Amish got it got it made in terms of like their like, you know, almost legitimized secession from normal state society. Mm-hmm. I mean, they still have to pay some taxes and it's not a complete secession, but it's in, in a lot of ways that they have some advantages we don't. And yeah, I mean, I have a very anti-urbanist kind of world set where I almost view cities as lost causes, at least the big ones. And so, yeah, we're always joking around. It was like when I when I made this podcast, he was like, why didn't you just name it the Anarcho-Amish podcast? That would be more <laughs> accurate to what you're trying to brand here. <laughs> That's funny. Are you uh, – so are you in a in a rural area now or trying to get there? Or? I mean, I live like in a suburban area that's kind of like nicely like – I mean, literally right on the edge of of where the rural Pennsylvania starts. Oh, cool! So yeah. it's that seems yeah. kind of ideal. Like I'm I'm yeah. a total city boy. Like I I live literally in the inner city. Like we hear shootings and stuff, right? And I've always loved that I live in this like chaotic area. I mean, until you know Minneapolis became ground zero of the year 2020, and mm-hmm. now I'm I'm like, man, where am I going to go? Cause you know, I mean, we have, we have friends here. We have family here, or at least my partner's yeah. family lives here. And, uh, you know, but I, I keep, I'm looking at houses right now and hoping that either I get paid more or real estate somehow miraculously starts going down in price. But, uh, I keep expanding the radius of the, <laughs> of the, of the Zillow <laughs> map, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Keep talking. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, it's, it, it, you know, I'm not, I wasn't always anti-city, but just especially post-2020, uh, I've become more skeptical of, of how it would, you know, work. I mean, I think small cities are probably doable, but I just think, really, I'm, I'm not anti-city. I'm just anti, like, the the, the the giant cities that we have, like, like mm-hmm. the 10 worst cities in America are just examples of, like, yeah, I mean – Cities probably should stop at a certain point. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, cities like Manhattan and, and Los Angeles and, you know, I mean, Baltimore is also a weird city to watch. I'm close to my dad grew up in Baltimore. I grew up a Baltimore sports fan. And that city's lost like over half its population over the past five years. I mean, it's it is become I mean, it, it used to be I mean, when you when you visit Baltimore now compared to 10 years ago, it's hard to believe it got worse but it got worse maybe that uh maybe that culling is natural like maybe that's just kind of what needs to happen in cities i mean you know hapa even talks about it in democracy the guy that failed that um you know most people are going to live in these covenant communities because most people are just trying to get along to or what is it get along to go along Um, right but then there are people who are just like by temperament urban people and yeah these are going to be like the hubs of culture and you know, your, your country folk who, you know, don't really care about the hubs of culture are going to ignore the cities and the people in the city and they're going to supply them with food. Um, but other than yeah. that, you know, it's, <laughs> it's pretty much going to be it. But I, I love, I love visiting cities. I just, yeah. you know what I mean? So it's like, I don't even want them to disappear, but I just, and I, you know, I looked a little bit, like I joined this Facebook group called like market urbanism and, and yes, that was I really love cool. market urbanism. That, yeah. I, I think I've reached out to them about appearing on the show actually. Really, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, I mean, other than the fact that it's infested with some geo libertarians, which I can't uh, stand. Wait, what is geo libertarians? Um, are those the Georgists? Yeah, so those are the Georgists. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they're, and so I, they're the ones basically who think that property, like the land, is held in common, and so everyone pays a property tax in order to fund the society. Is that about right? 
that's a fairly accurate summation. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I looked through Henry George. I read, uh, uh, progress versus property, I think was his main book. And, you know, I mean, in, in some ways I'll give Georgism credit in that, like it's land value tax is one of the least bad tax systems you could mm. come up with. I mean, it's way better than income tax, but the, the problem is like, if Georgists were saying, Hey, here's some good incremental reforms we can make on the current system. Wouldn't have much problem with them. It's the more radical, like, uh, philosophical Georgists that, I mean, I, I, I joke around with my one friend and call them land commies because that's basically <laughs> like what their philosophy seems to be, which is just like, you can't own land. Nobody can own land. Land is a commons. Land is. Yeah. Well, I'm very uh, sympathetic yeah. to that. Like, I, I go to the, I go to the, the, the typical Robinson Crusoe illustration that, you know, like Bob Murphy and I think probably Mises probably used it too. Where, you know, if, if I wash up on a desert island, then sure, the desert island is mine. But if you wash up on the desert island with me, it's not like we're going to build fences and never, and, and claim, and I'm going to claim this, this plot for myself and you're going to claim that plot for yourself. That's like the, that's a caricature of the Lockean vision of property. But really, I mean, we're going to come to terms uh, on what's mine and yours by agreeing with one another. I don't, I don't see anything natural about that. I don't think it's a natural law type thing. And so if we come out with a, with a Georgist type of arrangement, then that's just what we're going to do. Like it, it's to me, property rights is the least natural of all of the quote natural law things that, that like Rothbard talks, uh, talks about. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it, and this gets into like some things that we might talk about here in a bit, because I know we, we've talked about this stuff in the past, but it gets into like what you consider to be uh, like, you know, your, your theory of rights and what you consider to be real and what you consider to be self-evident versus what you would classify as like social constructs. But mm-hmm. I mean, I think that my, my main problem is just like, I view land as just another form of natural resource. And to me, it's just like, I don't, I don't see why land would be given this special status. Like I'm, I'm very against like, like w- one of my, standards or like rules that I kind of operate by is I don't like when people make rule like systems of rules or rights and then they they want to clarify things with exceptions and give people and give certain things special status. I hate that with politics. You know what I mean? Where where we give people special rights and special powers that the rest of us don't have. You know, if I take 30% of your your income, that's theft. If the state does it, that's just tax and it's the price we pay for roads and and all this other stuff and it's like I, you know again don't don't sell me on these people have special rights and then when we talk about resources it's like well if i can you know take anything from the earth that isn't owned by somebody else and make it mine i don't see where there's exceptions to it i think georgists make a lot of like silly straw man arguments you know it's kind of like that one where it's like well what happens in encapistan if everybody buys all the land around you and you can't leave it's like, okay, well, that would actually be entrapment. If people are pointing guns at you and not letting you leave your house, that is entrapment. That is a violation of, of the non-aggression principle. Now, they can also justly own that land, but they have a, they, they don't have a, they have a right to own the land. They don't have a right to hold you captive in your house. They would be obligated to say, all right, well, we own all the land around you, so we have to work out some kind of voluntary agreement with you to let you leave your house. That sounds because, an awful lot like an exception, Jacob. No, it's not an exception because, I mean, if – so let's play this out here. If I own all the land around you, I could say I move out to um, – you live in, in, in Minnesota, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, so I moved out to Minnesota, and I literally buy uh, or or you know homestead all the property around you. If you are just trying to leave your house and get out to the main road, you're not initiating aggression against me. So if I open fire on you because you step on my property, you're not the one who is violating the NAP. I'm the one who's violating the NAP because I'm I'm literally holding you hostage. So to me, I don't I don't see an exception there. I think that it, it, people think it's complicated because when we talk about property rights, people will sometimes think like, well, property rights are absolute in a sense that like the minute they're violated it justifies like it's almost like a straw man like it justifies deadly force it's like well no there is such a thing as reciprocity well is it a straw man uh, or is it a reductio i mean that's the thing a lot of times i mean look the the situation that you're talking about where you buy all the land around me is completely unrealistic like that's not going to happen sure but also if it did happen and you put up no no trespassing signs and i trespassed on your land well i would be trespassing is that not right Again, I think that my right to have you not trespass on my land is overruled by your right to not be held hostage. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I have a right to say who can be on my property in up up until my right to my property is literally holding you hostage at gunpoint. It's like it'd be like like a similar uh, analogy that when people say I um. If you let's say like we go up on a hot up air, hot air balloon, okay, and then the hot air balloon's mine. I invite you on. Then while we're up there, we get into an argument, and I decide you're a dick, and I'm like, you know what? Get off my property. <laughs> Do I have the right to push you off the hot air balloon because it's my property? Well, no, because if I push you, if I if I evict you while we're fifty thousand you know feet off the ground, you're going to die. Yeah. So that would be an initiation of force. I put you in a precarious situation. Therefore, I am responsible for making sure that uh, my property rights, like, yeah, my, I have a right to the hot air balloon, but that's superseded by your right to your body and for me not to uh, entrap you and then cause harm to your body. You know what I mean? If you wash up on my desert island, do I have a right to kick you off my desert island? <laughs> well, I mean, and this gives like, you don't have a right to own and more. I mean, obviously I wouldn't kick you off my desert island. That's a, that's a shitty thing to do, but do I have, do I have an obligation to give you a plot it of land be, on my island? I don't think it would be your desert island. Like how could, I mean, it depends how big we're talking about. Yeah. If we're talking about like a, a five by five put a patch of sand, well then maybe, but yeah, like in the first, like, if we're cartoons, both we're washed just, up, if we're both washed up on a five by five patch of sand, we have bigger problems than, yeah. <laughs> well, we, we better hope a woman comes up because, you know, I mean, we're going to have to repopulate this five by five patch of sand. Might be a little awkward for you, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, I'd close my eyes. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then of course, then, then that makes me your personal chef. And then we're, we're subjugated all, all over again. You become the state simply because you're the breeder. That's it. <laughs> uh, we took a weird turn. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it's what yeah, I that's good. Um, this is why I don't like rights theories. I just don't. Mm. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm sympathetic to Sterner, which I know that, uh, you and Jose talked about Sterner a little yeah, bit on his show. Or was I that your I, show or his? I can't remember. Uh, it was on my show. Um, okay, I think he reposted he it on his, yeah, he did. On his audio yep. feed because uh, yep. I don't ever listen to podcasts on YouTube. And so I was <laughs> well, so I agree with the idea that um, rights, if you don't act upon them, become functionally meaningless. And like and again, functionally. And the analogy I used um, in my conversation with Jose was the whole mask mandate thing. Mm. 
And I'd had this conversation a lot over the last year. And my rule of thumb was that I would walk into a store not wearing a mask. If while I like if if while I walked in, somebody demanded I wear a mask, well, then I would put it on or I would choose to leave if I didn't want to wear the mask. But if I went through the whole store and nobody uh, asked me to wear the mask or if they asked me and I gave them a reason why I didn't want to and they didn't push it. I didn't view that as a violation of their property rights, whereas other libertarians were trying to say, well, no, you're you're violating their property rights. So I'm like, well, I think what you act upon is what you care like, – like what you show yeah. you care about, what you act upon. I think those are more shown to be your – like what, what you're enforcing is what your property rights are. Meaning like if I just say I don't want to let you do this, but then I let you do it mm. – I, I'm I'm not sure where the violation is exactly, unless you're just. I mean, I, I it gets a little messy because like, well, they had a sign posted, and it's like, okay, but is a sign being posted an enforcement of the rule? I don't really think so. I mean, what if the like how how often do stores have a sign up for a sale? The sale ends and the sign is left up longer than it needs to be. So to me, point, it's yeah. like so it's like um you know there's a sort of benefit of the doubt that comes when you're on somebody's property that like. You know, if you're doing something, they have a rule about it, but they don't say anything about it. Well, then it's like, you know what I mean? It's like if I if I had a rule in my house saying don't take – I want you to take your shoes off when you come into the house, but you didn't, but I didn't bitch about it or tell you to. I can't like – you know what I mean? Like so you come into my house. Yeah. You wear your a- shoes and then like the next day I call you up and like James, like we're not friends anymore because you wore your shoes the whole time you were at my house. You'd be like, well, dude, you didn't, you didn't fucking say anything. That's a so. that's a really apt analogy too, because for some people, don't take your don't wear your shoes in my house is like really a, like a like an important thing. Like my my mom, I remember we had white carpet when I was growing up, and mm. <clears throat> she would like maybe once a week or so walk around the house with a little jelly jar of bleach and a toothbrush and just just scrub it stains all day long. And like for other people, don't wear shoes in the house is just a it's just a convention. Like you know, you're more comfortable in your socks, so you know, be comfortable in my house. In the same sense for the masks, for a lot of people wearing a mask was just an article of clothing. I mean, for me, like if you didn't believe the the propaganda about how, you know, efficacious um, this was and the, the, you know, it's the, it's the, in this, in the absence of a vaccine, this is the, this is the best tool we've got to stop the spread of COVID. Well, if you believe that, then sure. Not wearing a mask anywhere was, was a, a nap violation. However, if you were smart, then you understood that it was basically just a face covering and it had really no value other than to make people feel comfortable. Yeah, I think I could even put, I think I could push against it being a nap violation, even if wearing masks was effective because then it's like, all right, well, if you're required to do, it pushes like the boundary of like, how much do I owe people risk management? Cause that's mm-hmm. really what it is. It's different. Like people say, well, you can't drive down the left side of the road here in America. I was like, well, that's not risk management. That's actually like like pointing a gun at somebody. Yeah. Like if I point a gun at you, sure, I haven't actually committed violence yet, but I'm making a clear threat of violence towards you. Um, walking it really around, depends on the road. I mean, well, true. if, you're, if yeah. you're driving down a residential street, I, don't, I never stay on the right side of a residential street unless there's a, another car coming. And then I scoot over to the right. Usually I'm running, I'm right in the center of the road because well, you know, or, or if you're driving in a city and there's things parked on the side of the road and yeah. stuff. A lot of times you end up having to drive on the left. So yeah. Yeah, it's all, it's all contextual for sure. Um, but, but to me, it's like, I don't know that you are like, to me, rights are entitlement. They're things that society owes you. 
And that's why I always say I only believe in negative rights because I think the only thing that people owe you is is Mm non-action. Like the the only thing people owe you is that they they leave you alone, that they Mm -hmm. don't act upon you in ways that you don't consent to. But nobody owes you anything positive. And I would say that if you say that people need to wear masks and if they don't, you're violating the NAP, you're creating a positive right to a pathogen-free or uh, as close to a pathogen-free yeah. environment as possible. And I was like, I don't think you have a right to as path, uh, you know, a- as clean and sterile an environment as as society can, uh, uh, you know, afford you. And then it's like, it, and if they do, well, who defines that? You know what I mean? And and where does the line? Because like, if masks are effective, respirators are more effective. And if respirators are more, you know what I mean? It's like, so like yeah, it, wear it's a hazmat suit. Yeah. yeah. So, and then like, is it just during a pandemic? I mean, what if it was just the flu? And yeah. so it just, it creates all these variables and stuff. And now if you want to say that there should be a social norm that um, if you can, wearing a mask and if, and this, the caveat being the mask is shown to be effective, which I agree with you. I don't think that there's conclusive science to say the mask is much more than security theater, except in Dep- again, like if even if you're wearing an N95 mask in the proper way, I think you're you're, you're seeing very minimal mm-hmm. uh, results from that. And damn it, I'm not shaving my beard to wear a mask. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck your good um, seal. No, I'm just kidding. Right. Yeah. But yeah, if, if if in the hypothetical sense where a mask was shown to be, you know, effective enough to be distinguishable from like random chance, because again, epidemiology studies, people always like, oh look, it's a five percent difference. It's like you can't distinguish that from random yeah, chance. So yeah. you need you need at least 50 to a 100% you know change for the correlation to be compelling enough to to say okay that that's really compelling that shows a major change. Um if even if that existed you can't demand on society that they wear that because to me that is yeah. you're demanding positive action from people. Um and and that's just my conception of rights is that uh, the only rights that are that are philosophically valid are are negative rights. I think that it's going to become a social norm now for people not to go to work sick. For instance, once offices are fully reopened and people are going in every day, if they are are getting the sniffles or whatever, they're not going to go. They're not going to go in. I think that's going to become normal. I think that companies are going to start offering sick days and being more more open to that kind of thing. So, do you think in the in the absence of punitive measures? Um, and like other negative consequences for failing to go to work or failing to ride the bus or whatever, whatever it is. Do you think now that there is going like if that social norm does become a social norm, do you think that the 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 nature of that activity will change as it relates to the nap? Um, do you think like I guess what I'm saying is now that there's not going to be negative consequences for failing to go to work when you're not feeling well? Do you think that going to work when you're not feeling well is now a nap violation where or could be, whereas two years ago it might not have been? It could be. And that's where it's like if you're exhibiting symptoms and then you go into public around people, um, unless it's an emergency, you know, that does create a little bit of a gray area. It's just it, it's weird because like viruses are these weird third agents we're adding to the yeah. mix, and so it's kind of like it becomes it, it's really playing in the like the outermost gray space of the philosophical conception of rights, which is like, am I responsible for what third party agents, especially 
these tiny micro, barely even, like you can't even classify them as living organisms, these weird biological hacks and and what they do going from my body to yours. It, it, it's like, I don't know. This It's all, it's all about risk management. And I, I just, I think that in a social, but I think in a social convention sense, that that is how society is probably starting to move towards. I mean, I've already seen that. Um, although it's a bitch for people who have allergies like me, because then it's like, <laughs> like I'm not sick. I swear. It's just, it's Sneezing like, you know, in the grocery the, store has suddenly become right. like just a complete taboo. Right, yeah. My, my wife literally yells at me when we're in public and I start yeah. coughing. She's like, stop, people are going to think you're sick. And I'm like, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Don't know what you want me to do. Guess I'll just stay home the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, the last, so the last time I was really sick was in about 2012. And I, like I remember it, I drove myself, I barely could, I barely could function. I drove myself to the clinic inside of, inside of a Target store. So like it was crowded. Mm-hmm. I went and saw the physician's assistant at this clinic. He made me vomit with that long-ass cotton swab that they use. I guess they're using those for COVID tests now, too. Yeah. And he did the test, and he was like, yep, you're sick. I'm going to order this thing from the from the pharmacy, so go go out there and wait by the pharmacy. So I'm, like, standing there breathing my sick all over everybody. And then, you know, talking to the pharmacist. No mask, obviously. Um, and... That was just normal. That's what you did. You went to the you went to the clinic inside of a crowded department store, and I don't know. I don't know if we're going to get back to something like that or if it's going to be different. It's really weird. It's really weird to me. Like, well, I'm I'm wondering what's going to happen over the next ten to twenty years, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of long term studies come out about like the effects of the 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 new the new normal. I hate to say that because it's cringe, but like it'll be <laughs> interesting to see what effect that has on our immune systems because. We already here in the West because of how clean and, and sterilized we things are. Our immune systems tend to suck more than they do in other parts of the world yeah. where things are less clean. Yeah, they're getting worse. I mean, and you know, I think it's going to get worse. So it's like to the extent where you ask, is it a violation of the nap for people to go out when they're sick? It's like I don't know. It's just like it depends on what. If there's so many variables, because like on an individual person to person level. You could maybe make an argument that if you go out while you're sick, that you are kind of violating the nap. But then, like over like a long term analysis, it's like, well, if people are just becoming such germaphobes to to this extent, are we causing a greater level of harm to the point where, you know, even viruses that are less innocuous are going to start to become more and more deadly and harmful yeah. to people because people's immune systems are such shit? Because I mean, your immune system is like a muscle. It needs to be worked out. Um, and so it, it, it's really complicated. And, and I guess as a libertarian, I always lean towards things not being right to violations more so than the other direction, because the more we, the, the more we put in the umbrella of, oh, this violates the nap, the more restrictions on people's, you know, liberties that I think we're, we're putting on people. And, I think that the burden should fall more on the individual to, if they don't want to get sick, to take the measures that yeah. they feel are the most appropriate to prevent them from getting sick, more so than expecting other people to 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 do that for them. Now, that's just in a concept of rights and law and what's aggression and what isn't. Mm-hmm. There, libertarianism is a thin philosophy. There can there can be something else that says. Um, well, you didn't break a law or you didn't commit aggression, 
but you were being a dick. You know what I mean? So it, it, I think it kind of could would be a dick move to while you're sick to go out unless you had to. And then if you do have to go out, you should be trying to, you know, take some reasonable precautions sure. while you're sick. If you have to go out, like, you know, going up next to grandma and hacking up a storm <laughs> without covering your mouth, you know, uh, you I, I might still be able to argue that that's not aggression, but you're absolutely i think in that moment you are being a bit of an asshole so um you know again i I think the problem is like we always have to remember that not everything that's right or not everything that's wrong is going to uh overlap with things that we should we should would say are permissible or not permissible in a legal sense in a libertarian legal sense cool so uh why do you why do you believe in god hmm I just answered this in a clubhouse room a week ago. The, the most honest answer is I don't know because belief is such a weird thing. And for me to say why, I be, if I were to give you try to give you an honest answer about why I believe in God, it would almost, I feel like, have to be an answer that would be like, oh, it's because of X. And then if somebody were to disprove X, then, well, consequently, my belief should go away. But the problem is, it's like my belief is such an ingrained part of my being that it's just like, oh, I, I truthfully don't know why I believe in God. Sure. It, it, in fact, I have gone through periods of, of my life where I've seriously wrestled with that belief and tried to, you know, push it, push it away. Um, but it, but it, it sits there in my brain like this nagging little uh, parasite that won't leave. <laughs> almost. Um, what is so? What is your conception of like what is God? What a, yeah, I guess that's the question I would ask. Like, what, yeah. what is the nature of God? How, how, obviously it's not the stereotypical guy up in the clouds with a long beard. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> my, my, I guess I would define God in a, in like in a personal, I mean, cause like I could define God in a philosophical sense, but I think you're asking me what my personal conception of God in a more like personal relational sense or, um, or whatnot. I'm asking or do you both. Mean both? Both? Yeah, both. I mean, um, you know, in a philosophical sense, I think God is – I'm trying to come up with ways to say it without either quoting Jordan Peterson or sounding like Deepak Chopra. Chopra. So, um, <laughs> God is um, – God is hard to define because my conception of God is a being, although that's a really poor way to describe mm-hmm. God. But for lack of a better word right now, it is a being of sorts but it's also it's god is not just a being god is being and like when i say god is good it's not that god is is good like good is a description of god but, yeah. but like good is god yeah like goodness um, god is right. goodness like like, like god is and it's like and i'm trying to be clear here i'm not saying god is just an abstract cuz i do believe god is real but when i say god is real in in my opinion, my, my belief in, in God as being real, I don't mean real in the same sense that like I view you as being real or this microphone as being real mm-hmm. or, you know, it's real in the same way that like rights are real or consciousness is real. I mean, like, you know, there, there are borders between things in reality that science can describe and science can't describe. Like science can pinpoint a correlation between what we define as our consciousness and our personality and our being and the brain, but it can't fully explain it. It can't fully explain the experience of consciousness and sentience. 
So in the same way that like consciousness and personality are, and like the concept of a soul are kind of like spooky, you know, in the sterner sense, but, uh, but, but yet they seem real. That is how God is real to me in a sense that he, he you know, and, and I'm very, um, you'll find compared to a lot of Christians, I'll, I'll sound a lot more agnostic than other Christians because my faith in God, my belief in God is not rested upon some sense of certainty in, in, a, in a way that like, cause, cause you can't argue. I mean, I try, I mean, I went through that phase where I, I looked into atheism, argued with atheists and the arguments were so potent and so impossible to overcome that I literally thought that I was going to lose my faith. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, it was scary, but I was like, I don't know, like maybe I need to, you know, maybe maybe I'm just holding on to some kind of emotional attachment to the idea of God, but but that's all it is. Um, but I had a conversation with an atheist, and it it it, it caused me to to re- rethink the way I looked at it because I kept on trying to prove that God existed, and and what the atheist said to me was, it, I I should say his name, but. Because it's actually, well, I'll just say it. I had a conversation with Stefan Molyneux years ago before I stopped following him. Because mm. um, I, I actually went on his call-in show to talk to him about this because I was I was trying to verbally spar with somebody. Because that's what I do. When I'm struggling with something, it's like I have to talk it out. I need somebody to bounce ideas off of because otherwise it's all in my head and I can't I can't separate it out. But what, but what Stefan said to me still resonates with me to this day. Which he's like, I don't know why Christians are always trying to prove God exists. It's called faith. Faith is, you know, you believe and you say you have faith because you don't have evidence, because you can't prove it's true. If you could prove it's true, well, then it would just be science. It would just be, you know, reality. Um, Faith is something that deals with things that can't be proven, that that you can't know. And, you know, that, that... sticks with me to this day. And so when people ask like, why do I believe in God? It is almost involuntary in a sense, but it's just because God seems real to me. Um, and God to me seems to be like the only consistent, I guess like the only philosophical argument I can make is that, you know, it, without God, I would have to actually agree with like you and Jose and Sterner and all these other claims that like uh, rights and and morality and and all these uh, concepts are basically just social constructs and 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 meaningless and that I mean like useful maybe but but not real just just figments of our imagination and I find that I view these things much more in a uh, like a C.S. Lewis sense like in his book Mere Christianity um, when he just when he talks about like in the opening section about how the idea of natural law being that when we complain about somebody lying or cheating or murdering or, or raping, we're not just saying, hey, please stop doing that because that mode of behavior is not evolutionarily preferable. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. we go like we, we mean, we literally as a, as a movement make memes about wood chippers for pedophiles because we aren't just saying, hey, that's that's, you know, not preferable behavior. Please mm-hmm. stop. It's like, hey, you evil, repugnant asshole. We're going to fucking. Uh, load you into this wood chipper f- f- uh, f- uh, feet first so that you don't ever do it again because that action was so repugnant that we can't tolerate it. 
Well, and if you ask a, if you ask a, if you ask a, like David Gornoski and the, you know, mimetic theorists, the reason that we, and I, I don't really partake in the wood chipper memes. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of anti-punitive measures just in general. I think that seeking vengeance in any sense is bad for the soul. But if you ask, if you ask David Gornoski, the reason that we do that, the reason that we as humans have a tendency to do that is because we need a scapegoat. So in order to, in order to, in order to get around the fact that we no longer pay attention to Christ's sacrifice, um, because he was the ultimate scapegoat, we need to sacrifice pedophiles and murderers and rapists and, and all of these other people who, you know, if you just locked them away for the rest of their life or gave them treatment and made it so that they no longer want to abuse people or take other, some other means other than putting them in a wood chipper, then you would be just as good and maybe even better because they could be productive members of society. But instead, we, we turn them into scapegoats. And to me, that kind of attitude is anti-Christian. Vengeance's mind says the Lord. Well, I, I actually agree with you. And, and so like I'm, I was talking kind of like with my libertarian hat on, but it, what you're saying is actually very true in that my Christian sentiments come in conflict with a lot of the libertarians around me when they talk. Like, And I, I, I kind of joined in on the joke because it's like I'm not trying to be the party pooper in the corner sure. and be like, well, actually, God, nothing. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, but and I, I, what I tell people is that in a ANCAP society, um, I wouldn't be the one roping up the pedophile and dragging him to the yeah. uh, community guillotine or, 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 or to be hung or whatever. But, I mean, I, I also wouldn't be out there like, you know, loudly protesting trying to stop them you know what i mean it's like i don't think that's the right way to go yeah. um as a christian i kind of do believe in the idea that jesus was the ultimate sacrifice and that you know even in the most evil repugnant action a person can commit i don't believe in killing someone unless it is like incidental in a effort to stop them from mm committing harm so like, it's one thing like it's like in the in the moment when i'm trying to stop somebody from committing a crime if deadly force is necessary to to stop them from inflicting harm upon more people yeah. i'm okay with that but if they've already been restrained and it's already after the fact i'm i'm very against i'm always against capital punishment from the state um because they don't trust the state to to do that and then uh in a but if we had and kapistan tomorrow i i still don't know if i would be really for public executions yeah, of any of any type because it's still whether it's the state or a mob it's still human beings who are like yeah. fallible is too is too weak a word yeah to me to me yeah, to me sure. we can't possibly know what's right for somebody I, I i think that's what when jesus said judge not lest you be judged which you know my people the gays love to use against christians in reality like he meant something by that he didn't mean you know don't judge my behaviors what he meant was don't judge me as a person and, you know, uh, don't don't sentence me to hell because you think I deserve to go to right. hell. You have no well, idea where my mind is. And that's the thing is, like, if you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus died for the forgiveness of all sins. Mm. Now, I'm that's not right. You speaking, said you're you said you're you lean universalist, right? I mean, I, I, I do. But, you know, I, I go back and forth on that. And yeah. it's like, I don't know. I don't think that you can prove universal reconciliation. But. I think you can make somewhat of a compelling argument for it. Yeah. Um, but, but regardless of how many are saved, whether it's everyone or, or, or not, you know, and even 
like, and it's funny like because like I, I kind of have a Calvinist background, and so some people would be like, "Well, if you're Calvinist, then you believe some people are just predestined for hell no matter what." <laughs> and it's like, well, that would be true, but also like we can't know, so we have to act as if yeah. it's not true. So it doesn't matter, however you slice it. Um, if we kill somebody, what we're basically saying is like we are. It's a. It's almost a. Um, an act that betrays God because of a lack of faith. Because what you're saying is, God, I don't trust that you can redeem this person. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's like, I would never be so arrogant as to tell God, you can't redeem this person. Even even the person that I think is the least deserving of it, uh, the least likely to, to accept grace, um, you know, I'm not going to uh, advocate to claim to know better God and be like, well, this person has now crossed the line to where they no longer deserve to live and have no shot at redemption. I'm not saying there can't be consequences to be like, well, yeah, you, you know, we're not going to kill you, but we're also probably not going to just let you back into public society tomorrow and hang around children. But I mean, that's where, that's where I'm a little bit torn because like I am, I am anti-punishment, but if I were like, you know, running my own covenant community, I think that we would stop short of capital punishment. But also if someone is a genuine danger to, a society then like, you know, expulsion from the covenant community means that he's going to go have to find another community to live in. And that, you know, I mean, that to me puts that other community at risk. And as someone who cares about people, uh, I wouldn't want to send someone to exile, which leaves prison. And I don't want to have to ask my, ask the other citizens of this community to pay for a prison. Like, well, I think there's some good Mises um, articles. I forget who wrote them. But Bob Murphy some good... has chaos theory, if that's what you're talking about. Yeah, there's that too. Like, I forget where where I read this exactly, but I've heard some some pretty good, compelling arguments for how private prisons could work and mm-hmm. how they would almost be things that criminals would voluntarily go to because they basically, you know, you could have a private law society set up to where like they would basically have a choice to either be completely ostracized, living out in the wilds by themselves forever, mm-hmm. or if they want to have any semblance of like not having to be self-reliant, they would have to basically check in to competing private prisons that they'd be free to leave, uh, go into and free to leave, you know, and, and they would go there and work. It's not like the community would be paying for it. They'd be going there. And some people say, well, it's kind of a form of indentured servitude and whatnot. It's like, yeah, well, I don't know. Like, I mean, stop. I, I hate the Nirvana fallacy when people just endlessly criticize one idea after the other. And it's like, well, that's not, it's like, you know, at some point, rubber meets the road and you got to at least do something and you can improve upon it over time. That's the beauty of the free market is that you can start out with a a set of actions and judge the consequences of it and, you know, continue to improve upon it over time. And yeah. and the market does a lot, lot better of that than the state. But yeah, I agree with you in a you know, as a Christian, I'm I'm very hesitant to after the, again again like during a crime, during an initiation of force, like I'll, I'll do what's necessary. But yeah. afterwards, it's like um, now we have a bit of a complicated uh, case in our hand. But the reason I brought up the whole like what Chippecober and the whole thing was, was just to demonstrate that people feel strongly yes. about these things, and yep. that um, it's hard for me to like my conceptions of good and evil, and my conceptions of even like libertarian versus the state you know these these narratives that we come up with they, they just seem to me hard to reconcile like, i guess like here's the here's the, the the real line in the sand which is that i find myself unwilling to believe we live in a completely naturalist materialist world now 
that's an assertion, not an argument sure, that I can yeah. say, well, because I don't want to live in that, that means it must be true. Um, I can make some, not arguments, I can give reasons for why I think that, like basically, my I guess like my, my, my arguments, whatever you want to call them, my claims would be that if we live in a naturalist, materialist world, I just don't know why I'm supposed to feel compelled to give a shit about any of this, is mm-hmm. what it comes down to. And and the fact is, I give a – it's not that I just I give a shit. I give like the most shits. I mean I'm not – I can't get off the toilet. That's how much of a shit I give. So <laughs> <laughs> so it's like – I mean and, and that's how 90% of people are. Even people who aren't libertarians tend to – you know, even if it's not politics, there are things that they care very strongly about. And it's just hard for me to to to, to look at that. And to say, yeah, this is all the consequence of stardust and electrons firing in my my brain. Mm-hmm. It's like I just – I feel like reality has to be more than that. And I can't explain it scientifically, but that's because I don't think that – you know, this is where I I, I, I don't – I don't know. I've never heard you talk about Jordan Peterson, so I don't know what your feelings on him are. But I really like what Jordan Peterson talks about, and I don't I, – I've never gotten the sense he's even a – religious christian in the same the same sense that i am but he does talk well, about at how, least like, not pre at least not pre-illness i think he's since I think then he's had, yeah. a, had a pretty come to jesus year last year but uh, yeah for sure but um but yeah he's always before and after his 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 illness he's talked about how reality and truth is more than just science and more than just materialism yeah and, and that's self-evident yeah i think uh vin armani actually he was on my show talking about this like the fact that I can fall asleep in a dark room with my eyes closed and dream about the sun and like see the sun and, like and feel the sun in a cold room in a in a dark room and yet here I am perceiving this light tells me that there's something other than brain synapses at work. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's just other other than that it's like if we if if morality was just basically the consequence of evolution i just i feel like evolution would get you part of the way there to caring about Mm -hmm. actions but i don't think i i don't think that it would get to where we are today and it just i know and then it's like you know it, it is kind of a ghost in the machine and the problem is like you can't measure it and that's the whole problem we have with the supernatural with when we get into all this talk about metaphysics and like I don't think that it's wrong for atheists and skeptics and and the agnostics who aren't religious to to question that and go, I'm not convinced. And it's like, well, I'm not even saying I'm convinced because I have faith. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Like if I was convinced, it wouldn't take faith. So it, I have faith because I see patterns and I go, you know what? Like these patterns are pushing me towards these conclusions that I can't prove, but they make sense out of reality. And so I'm going to operate on them because and and the only and the only sense that they are scientific is that I continually I continually rely upon Christianity and 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 uh, the the Bible to make sense of my reality and it continues to work. Um, I mean, not perfectly because I mean, again, like I hate I'm I'm very much agnostically oriented because I hate when people point out like, well, it's not perfect. And are you absolutely sure? It's like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what, you know, define and, and, and explain to me what absolute certainty or perfection yeah. is like nothing's perfect here in this in, in this life we live. But more often than not, 
when I'm using, um, going to the Bible and I'm praying to God, you know, these things make sense of, of my life and they make sense of the world around me in ways that other worldviews don't. And that's just for me. I can't use that as an argument to go out and convince other people. But I don't even think the Bible, t- the Bible tells me as a Christian to preach the gospel. And if anyone's going to change people's minds, it's not me. It's actually God working through uh, the, the scriptures and, and the preaching of the word. Um, I think that the, this is where I still have some, some, some Calvinist leanings, but like the, the, the reformed tradition and other traditions too talk about how like the, the way that people come to God is that the Holy Spirit reaches out and, you know, like removes the, the wool from their eyes and, mm-hmm. and, and replaces the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And, Really, the only divide between the universal reconciliationists and Calvinists is just that the universalists believe in that process, but it's for everybody. Or even if it doesn't happen in this life, it happens after they die. And the Calvinists are just convinced that it's not everybody. And I'm agnostic in the middle. So it's yeah. like I grew up in, in, in a, with more of a Calvinist, especially like in my teen years, I grew up in a more Calvinist-oriented church. And so a lot of my theological background comes from that. And there's a lot of Reformed theology that informs my anarchist views too, because the Reformed um, theologians tend to take a very high view of viewing God as king. And mm-hmm. there was actually, of there wasn't enough churches to find the lockdowns over uh, the past you know year and a half, but of the ones that were, many of them were the Reformed churches. Like yeah. One of the big ones, Apologia, with uh, like James White and... Um, uh, I forget the name of the other dude. Um, but, but they were very vocal about uh, continuing to meet. They even uh, uh, was a, a Durbin, um, and he gave a, a, a sermon entitled "No King But Christ." And my pastor basically gave you know a lot of people. A lot of these pastors were coming out and saying, um, "No, listen, like we believe that God created. That they're not anarchists, but they're but they're they're close. It's it's like a step away." To where like they believe that states exist and we're supposed to submit to them, but they recognize that that uh, they reject the state worship, which is the thing about American Christianity that pisses me off the most is yeah. the Christians that are all with the American flag and the worship of Trump, and you know it, it's funny being in the Mises Caucus and being accused of of. Uh, funneling in Republicans and Trumpers when it's like those are the people I can stand the absolute least. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, these are the same people who you know nominated Bob Barr and then Gary Johnson twice for their presidential right. nominees. I mean, you know, <laughs> who's talking about Republican entryism? The Republican congressman who voted for the Iraq War and a Republican governor who wouldn't know Mises from a hole in the ground. I mean, like, right? Come on. Okay, let's uh, let's start wrapping up. I want to get some practical some practical stuff from you. Um, what is your spiritual life like? Do you do you pray every day? Do you pray the rosary? I won't tell anybody. I promise. Uh, <laughs> meditation, that kind of thing. What do you? What's your what's your what's your regimen? I don't have a regimen. I, I live my life, and as things come up, um, you know, it, like there's some things that will come up, and it's like I need to go to the Bible and read. Sometimes it's just like an open stream of consciousness, me praying to God. Sometimes if I'm going through a hardship, yeah, praying and fasting, more formalized, kneeling at my bed, sitting down with my wife and my kids, um, you know, reading the Bible and praying about it afterwards. Um, You know, it's, there's no, I'm not, I'm not somebody like my personality is like, I'm, 
I'm very disorganized, so I don't have a set schedule for for any of this. And if I tried to set one, I know I wouldn't follow it. Yeah. Um, and I also have ADHD, so my 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 Bible readings tend to be very uh, like going after things that I find my mind obsessing about. So, um, you know, it's 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 a little chaotic, but um, it's 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 very much like. I mean, the way I view God in my my spiritual life is very much like like a father, and also, mm. a, I mean, like the the Trinity is a really interesting concept and a, and a weird thing to experience because it's like depending on what I'm going through, sometimes I am kind of like praying and and trying to communicate with God in a sense of like He's my Father, but then sometimes I feel like I'm more trying to um, communicate with like the essence of, of Christ and Jesus and, and, you know, the, the part of God that took flesh and that walked the earth among us. And it's more like God, our brother. Um, and then sometimes it's more like the Holy spirit where it's just like, I don't even know what I'm trying to do, but I just, I feel driven by something that feels more than what I am for me to do something or to, to feel moved in a certain direction. So it's, um, you know, I, I grew up, I, I, before I went to, um, the, uh, Calvinist church, my young years, I grew up Pentecostal. So for a while I was turned off by a lot of that because a lot of Pentecostal churches, like, I don't know how much experience you have with them, but some of them are a little, <laughs> a little out there. Um, yeah. I actually doubted my faith when I was really young because I couldn't, I couldn't speak in tongues and, or you couldn't speak money into existence or you couldn't right, handle yeah. poisonous snakes or whatever else. Pente- right, I mean, yeah. Pentecostals have, they contributed a lot to Christianity, in my opinion, but some of their more distorted, some of their more distorted evangelism is, in my opinion, destructive of it's it's destructive of Christianity's image in the society. I mean, really. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and like the, the my childhood church became a it's really weird combination. It came it became a charismatic Episcopalian church. Which is, yeah. There's a there's a there's a charismatic Catholic movement. My mom, yeah. my mom has spoken in tongues. It's you know it's that's that's what I mean by contributing to Christianity. I, I yeah. Think that so it's yeah. it, you know it's it you know and that's the other thing too is like I find myself because I'm doing this project and this podcast conversing with a lot of different denominations and Christians of different backgrounds, and then I'm also encountering atheists and and people who are Jewish, people who have different religions, and you know it's it's an ongoing. You know, I I try to remain open minded. I try to not be dogmatic in my beliefs, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I want to be rooted in the Bible and not be like one of those loosey goosey Christians who kind of like, um, well, the Bible just says whatever I want it to say, and I'll cherry pick passages and ignore the rest. And you know, that's tough. I mean, sometimes people, you know, when when people come at me with the passages about slavery or with the stuff in the Old Testament where God said to wipe out entire civilizations, I mean, that shit is tough to reconcile with. But I feel like, you know, I feel like if I were to start saying, well, those parts of the Bible aren't actually inspired and aren't aren't actually, you know, aren't from God, then it's just like, well, I've completely subjectivized it and I'm I'm trying to define God by my sensitivities instead of trying to seek the greater truth that I believe exists. I think uh so. a book that I recommend to you for that would be uh it's called A Father Who Keeps His Promises. It's actually by a Catholic historian who started out Presbyterian. He's a Presbyterian pastor, so he's got Calvinist hmm. roots like you. 
you'd like it. It's a it's a it's a romp through salvation history. Lots of puns and stuff too, which is always fun. Oh, that's cool. So you said mere Christianity, and what was the the other one? And disentangling something. There's a a good book. So mere Christianity is a really good like Christian primer for someone who, whether you're not a Christian and you're trying to yeah. learn about Christianity, or you're a Christian who's trying to learn more of like just like trying to. If you're in, in the middle of deconstruction and you're trying to like get back to a baseline, mere Christianity is mm-hmm. good for that. There's a book by Keith Giles called Jesus Untangled that is That's really good for um, kind of like laying like like laying out the arguments as far as like un- disentangling Christianity from politics and and kind of coming back to a no king but Christ. Did you mention that in in this interview? No, I, I said it on a. No, it was with uh with Josh. I said it on Josh's show. Oh, okay. I've been listening to your interviews yeah. today just to kind of uh, find material right. and stuff like that. Okay, cool. Another another good book for um another good book for Christian libertarianism and anarchism is a uh, Faith Seeking Freedom by the uh, Libertarian Christian Institute. So okay. if there's if there's Christians trying to learn more, um, I mean if you if you like podcasts and stuff, check my podcast out because I've done a lot of that. But if you're someone that likes to read more, um, th- those are two good books to kind of. You know, Jesus Untangled is more of a theologically based book to kind of like, and it really targets like Western Christianity mm-hmm. and kind of like the uh, the idolatry of what the church has engaged in as far as like worshiping the state. And and really, it's no like to me, it's like statism is immoral for so many reasons. And like I could I could say like, well, don't murder and don't steal, and the state violates both of those so obviously yeah. just by that it's immoral but then even more fundamentally it just to me it violates the first two commandments because yeah to me the state demands uh your it's, it's worship and loyalty and really like throughout the entire bible every state that that is brought up talks about that and then god literally warns the israelites from first samuel 8 to be like um you're asking for a king and by doing that you're rejecting me just like when you when you put up the golden calf and uh, if you ask for this king, he's going to take your shit, enslave your children, and it's not going to be a good time. <laughs> it's basically like like some summarized with some uh, modern language. He's like uh, um, having a um, asking for a king is not cash money. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. That's kind of <laughs> what you're what you're describing there. That's kind of what a father who keeps his promises is about. It's the series of covenants that come from God's people rejecting God uh, right. and God swearing a covenant oath with them anyway. Right. There's like a series of those throughout the Bible, starting with Adam and going through Christ. Uh, so anyway, it's a great, that. It, yeah. Go ahead and plug what you, where people can find you. Let's get out of here. Yeah. So, um, biblical anarchy is my, um, handle at Twitter and then everywhere else. It's uh Daniel three biblical anarchy, Facebook, YouTube. Um, I use anchor FM. So I'm on Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts. I mean, there's like 12, I mean, you know, pretty much any podcast app I'm probably on right now. So you can find me that way. Cool. Thanks a lot, Jacob. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. All right. Thanks again to Jacob for joining me today. And thanks to you, as always, for tuning in.
Two quick bits of housekeeping. First bit of housekeeping. Did you know that you can follow Blackbird on Telegram? You can. Go to t.me slash learn to see to do that. And also, I finally caved and created a Facebook page, which has really been driving a lot of traffic to the podcast. So I probably should have done it before, but I was stubbornly avoiding Facebook for obviously good reasons. But if you can't beat them, join them. Look for Blackbird Podcast with James Gentleman on Facebook to join the conversation there. The second bit of information is that I have finally started releasing premium content. I am, as of episode 45, releasing these interviews uncut and unedited for the most part to my paid subscribers as soon as I have them out of the Zoom thing. So if you wanted to hear, for instance, me and Jacob bantering about audio equipment and me almost drowning on a sip of water in the middle of this conversation, then you want to be on the paid rolls. And besides that, you get these episodes sometimes a week, sometimes even two weeks early. I often have quite a backlog of interviews, and so if you want to be on the cutting edge of these and join the conversation with me and my guests before everybody else, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, sign up for one of the paid options. If you are content with being a freeloader, that's fine too. Head to blackbirdpodcast.com, sign up for the free option. No hard feelings. You'll still get email updates every time I release a piece of free content. Once again, that's blackbirdpodcast.com. Sign up with your email address for free content. Sign up with your email address and $7 a month or $70 a year for all of my premium content and to get the satisfaction of knowing that you are supporting this project that I am working on. However you support the show, thanks so much for doing it. I appreciate you tuning in this time and I will see you next time on Blackbird. Until then, live free. (laughs) 